Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us once again as we stroll across the great battlefields of Europe. We're back into it now after our short break and loving being back on the battlefields, of course, in a virtual sense. Someone who is not just on the battlefields in a virtual sense is my co-host, Pete Smith, because, Pete, you've been out and about lately. You've been actually leading tourists on the battlefields. Must be exciting. (laughs) I have. I've had a four-day tour. It was extraordinary. But So if my voice sounds a bit croaky, it's because I'm not used to talking for four days on the trot. But it was fantastic to be back out there again. Well, it's great, mate. And hopefully as things go on, we'll see this uh, more and more that hopefully, dare I say it, we may be at the end of COVID and the chance for all of us to get back to the battlefields may not be that far away. So it's looking positive here in Australia for our Australian friends that we could eventually next year get back to the battlefields. So it'll be great uh, to be able to do it in <laughs> genuinely rather than just here in a virtual sense. But in the meantime, we're all here together. We get to walk many great battlefields. And today it's going to be a really good one as well. We're going to walk Belward Ridge in Belgium. This is going to be a really good one. It's an exciting place. It's a, it's a good spot to visit and uh, something a little bit different. Well, it's, it's unusual. It's a place that I know quite well, but not necessarily for 1915. So we're going to be discussing what went on in 1915 uh, at Belward and on the Ridge. Um, but we're going to really be chatting about what there is to see today. So if you're going to do follow this walk, what can you actually expect to, uh, to see? That's going to be a really good one. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Just before we do, a couple of little housekeeping things. As I've mentioned before, if you want to support the podcast, you now can through Buy Me A Coffee. You can go there and make a donation just to support the podcast, which is very helpful to uh, to help support the podcast and enable us to do a few more episodes and to, and to keep going. Uh, and also, we are now offering subscriptions through Apple 
subscription through Apple Podcasts, you can now subscribe. And if you subscribe, you get bonus episodes. So you can subscribe, get a free week, a free one-week trial and listen to what we're doing with those bonus episodes and then uh, hopefully carry on and subscribe. So it's pretty cheap, that monthly subscription, and it means you get great extra content. So last week we did Machine Guns as the first episode. We got all sorts of good extra things coming up. So if you want extra bonus episodes, if you can't get enough of Pete and I chatting, and I can't quite understand why that would be the case, but if it is the case, you can certainly go there. Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe and uh, listen to some bonus episodes. So, Pete, this week, as we said, Belward Ridge in the Eep Salient. Um, give us an overview of just where this area is as it relates. Just one of your very quick potted histories. Why is this area significant in the Eep Salient? Okay, so we're on the Menin Road, a very famous Menin Road, out through the Menin Gate and uh, onto the Menin Road. And uh, it's at a place called uh, Hooge. Now, I'm going to use the uh, the English pronunciations, the, the way that we would say these. And uh, I think it's Hooge, but we'll stick to Hooge, uh, because that's as the soldiers would have known this. And we're at a place called Hooge, which for anybody that's visited this area will know there's a very good uh, little cafe there, which we'll be discussing in a little while, and a cemetery, which we'll also be discussing. Um 1915, as I say, quite often when we're in this area, we're discussing the fighting in 1917 during the Third Battle of Ypres, uh, which started in the July of 1917. Uh, But we're in between the second and third, just after the second. So when was the Second Battle of Ypres? 22nd of April to the 25th of May in 1915. And the battle we're looking at at Belward, 16th of June in 1915. So we're just going to be using that battle really as as uh, where we're going to hang on what we can see as we walk along the, the road that we're going to follow to a, a little place called Railway Woods. And so we're going from Hooge, Hooge to Railway Wood. That's the walk we're doing. And as we should point out, this is not we're not actually following in the footsteps of a specific battle here. We're just walking a picturesque little corner of the battlefields where there's lots of great stories to tell. So similar to what we did in Gallipoli to what we've done on other battlefields, just walking a section of the battlefield and talking about the great sights there are to see there. So let's kick off, Pete. Where are we starting? Well, we've parked our car, if you're in a car or if you're in a bus or whatever you're in, walking, cycling, and we've parked on the Manning Road and we're going to walk into Hooge Crater Cemetery. Uh, Hooge Crater Cemetery, one of the more interesting cemeteries of the Great War battlefields. They're all interesting, but this one has a an interesting history, I suppose. Uh, designed by Sir Edwin Lutyen, so the I suppose you'd have to say the number one architect uh, on the on the battlefields, creating the uh, Commonwealth War Graves cemeteries as they are now. Um, it was a battlefield cemetery, so just uh, as the fighting moves off and, and leaves this area and pushes up the ridges, we have uh, 76 original graves, but it became a spot where they put that pin in the map and they said, right, we're going to make this into a concentration cemetery, we're going to bring uh, as many of the, the dead in the area or, uh, into this cemetery, individuals, uh, people found as they start clearing the battlefields, but also when they start closing down these smaller cemeteries that are not viable, uh, and they will be moved in, in here as well. So it's one of the larger concentration cemeteries on the salient. For Australians, it really is. There are 509 Australian soldiers who were concentrated uh, into this uh, into this cemetery. Sadly, the majority of the people here are going to be unknown. So I'll just run through the numbers. Uh, 5,153 British, 509 Australians, 
190 New Zealanders, 95 Canadians and overall 3,580 unknown soldiers within the cemetery. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big old cemetery and quite amazing as you walk into it because as we will be doing now we walk into the cemetery and right in front of us, oh, this is quite unusual, is the Stone of Remembrance. It's the first thing you see and it's in a little sunken area that looks like a crater. So it's in the centre of a, of a crater as you walk into the cemetery and then you look down the slope and you you perceive all the graves running off into the distance it's an extraordinary cemetery it's sort of one of those ones that takes your breath away and i use it as the example whenever i'm there as just to explain about concentration of graves and how these graves were brought in from the battlefields and we're going to do a whole separate podcast about that in fact on my living history channel a year or two ago we did a, a podcast about cemetery so go back and find that on the living history podcast to hear pete and i talking all about cemeteries but we'll do a special episode on cemeteries at some stage in the Battle Walks series of podcasts. But I always use Hooger Crater as the example of just how much these cemeteries ballooned. 76 original graves. At the end of the war, soldiers would have marched past this cemetery dozens of times and just seen 76 graves there. And then if they'd come back a few years later, 5,153 bodies. Just extraordinary yeah, how big these cemeteries <laughs> grew. And as, as we say, the reason, the, the probably the sole reason, is it's simply accessible. It's by the side of the road. It means visitors can get there. It means that gardeners can get there easily. There's roads to bring up supplies and to build the cemetery. Just simply an easy spot. Interesting with the numbers, Pete, as well, that um, 119 New Zealanders is a fair old whack of New Zealanders and only 95 Canadians. Unusual yep. to find uh, in this sector to find such a small number of Canadians out of that total, particularly when you think there's 509 Aussies in there because the Australians and the Canadians usually went hand in hand and the Canadians yep. fought a lot uh, in this area in the early days. Yep, they're very close. Uh, we have uh, Sanctuary Wood not far away at all, so you would expect more, but I think you'll find that, that most of the Canadians are nearer to Sanctuary Wood. As you were talking then, I was desperately looking through my phone just to have a look at a photograph that I took just recently in these last uh, four days, because there are some issues with this cemetery. Uh, in 1919, uh, when they were really starting to lay out the cemeteries, we had a few problems uh, to the extent where the Imperial Wargraves decided to do a, a couple of test exhumations of people that were uh, here, buried in the cemetery, and discovered that either they weren't in the right place, they were not there at all, or the wrong person was there. And it got bad to the extent that the uh, Australian uh, government requested that all Australian soldiers should be exhumed from this cemetery. Of course, it didn't happen. It was turned down. That It just couldn't happen. But there was definitely some worries associated with uh, the bodies uh, located in, in this cemetery. Um, and you only have to look at it to realise when you start walking down these nice, neat rows that things are not quite as they seem. You'll see 10 unknown soldiers on one headstone. The next headstone says 15 unknown soldiers. The next one says 10 unknown soldiers. And you think, how are these all fitting into this space? It's not possible. You cannot fit all these number of bodies in this space. And you realise that a lot of these rows are notional rows and there must be mass graves uh, close by or, or beneath them. And I, what I was looking for on my phone to look at this photograph, which is extraordinary, it says, to the memory of several soldiers of the Great War buried in this grave. Well, that's a bit a bit wide, isn't it? Several soldiers buried in this grave. And I think it's a, a little bit of, an, of a, it gives you a clue as to this cemetery not perhaps quite as neat and tidy as it looks nowadays. It's ghastly, isn't it? The work that had to be done after the war with these these bodies, and you know they they did a wonderful job trying to preserve the memories of these people. But there's also the the horrific mechanics of 
recovering bodies or trying to identify them and just the, the, the work of those grave units must have been really horrific in places like this. Yeah, I, I agree. We also have a, a few notables uh, buried here. One that we've covered in previous podcasts, Patrick Joseph uh, Bugden, um, VC, uh, awarded the Victoria uh, Cross uh, at Polygon, fighting at Polygon Wood, so we won't uh, cover his citation. And then there's another chap that I, I found very interesting, Private Christopher James Alexander, and he's an English ornithologist. He's actually buried here. He died of wounds and was buried here. Uh, a very interesting chap, but one of those guys that when you start reading about him and his biography, you realise he was definitely not soldier's material. He uh, he was very keen to enlist, as an awful lot of, of men were, but he was a very quiet, uh, very shy uh, man who would prefer to be with birds and uh, and animals rather than people, and yet he did his did his bit, and he all the time he was on the Western Front, he c- continued to keep a diary about what he was looking at uh, from the the birds and what was going on in the areas. Uh, it was terrible, really. It's a terrible loss to the uh, to the to the country. One of 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 many people uh, who uh, had something to give and sadly will not. Uh, Major Albert Stewart, DSO, another of the men buried here, and he's an Irish uh, rugby international, made three appearances uh, for the joint Irish team, and he was killed in action on the 4th of October in 1917, and that's the Battle of uh, Broodsind. Uh, he'd served in the Royal Irish Rifles, um, but was killed serving with the Machine Gun Corps. So they're just three of the many, many uh, people and many other, I'm sure, notable people who of, people of note who are buried within the cemetery. And as we've said so many times before, when you visit a military cemetery, take the time to wander around and read the headstones and and just so many remarkable stories have come forward just by noting an unusual rank or an unusual inscription on a headstone. And Pete, you must have dozens of examples of just great stories that have been, been told simply from the headstones. My phone is full of photographs of headstones that I need to investigate further. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I'll ever get round to have them is another matter completely. But yeah, that's, that's exactly uh, right. So it's just amazing the stories that are there, the stories that need telling. Well, uh, there's a, there's a book in there, mate. Unusual headstones on the Western Front. You can go and tell all the stories. Yep. It'll be a, it'll be a hell of a, a hell of a project if you ever if you ever pull that one off. It's yep. a yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting cemetery. Huge crater. I, I like it. It's, it a, it's a good spot to visit. And I don't get there often enough, but because um, we tend not to go there on Aussie tours unless there's a specific reason to. But it's a yeah. good uh, it's a good spot to go and remember these blokes. Where are we heading to next? Okay, well we're just going slightly up the road, so up uh, away from Ypres, uh, and on the left hand side. I'm only going to mention this because this could be a podcast in its own right. Uh, and this is the site of the old chateau. It's now uh, a very nice uh, little hotel. Uh, well, not so little, a, a hotel, an old style hotel. Um, and in the grounds we have uh, craters. There are craters all over the place. And very often they are pointed out as the, the Hooge Crater of note because there is a, a museum here and it's known as the Hooge Crater Museum. We're going to talk about that next. And people just imagine that this, these are the craters. Actually, they're not. These are from 1916. The ones that have they've been, um, I suppose, beautified and turned into a, a lake uh, in the grounds of the, uh, of the hotel of the old chateau. Um, I'm in danger of telling you a bit more of the story of this, and I don't want to, so I'm going to stop there. Other than just to say, the uh, the chateau is famous uh, because in the early stages of the war, on uh, a uh, literally a shell landed on the chateau and uh, and uh, took out the first and second divisional headquarters, the staff that were there. So it, it's it's infamous, I suppose, not famous. Is the is the chateau, and that happened uh, in the October of 1914, so right at the beginning of the the fighting in this area. Um, but we'll we'll save that for another day, I think. 
I think summing it up, Pete, is that just a ghastly area during the war, gas yeah. and mud, and this yep. is one of the areas that you would that soldiers spoke of with, with dread, with they'd been up to Huge yep. along this road. That just uh, they typifies the horrors of of the Ypres salient and mud and gas and rats and just everything horrific. It's it's difficult to uh, to believe that now when you go past the area. But tune in for a future podcast. We talk specifically about the chateau and the crater and uh, and yep. the fighting in this area because you're right. It's worthy of a story in its own right, Pete. Yeah. Yeah, it is indeed. Also worthy of uh, noting is the uh, the museum and the cafe, which is uh, one of my favourite spots to stop after a long day on the battlefield. It's just a great, uh, just uh, it's a museum that's done as museums should be in this part of the world. Oh, it's a it's a fantastic museum. I mean, to the extent that it's uh, uh, been voted the best uh, private museum in Flanders, so it's a fantastic little museum, and I have to say, much enhanced in these periods of uh, of nobody visiting. Uh, then Nick, who uh, who is the the owner uh, and curator and everything, and he uh, and him and his wife. Now I'm going to say this wrong, so I do apologise, Nick. But uh, Ilse. And I think it's got with an et on the end. And Nick did tell me how to say his wife's name when we were there, and I've forgotten. So I completely apologise. And the uh, the two boys, his two boys, uh, Lewis and Arthur, uh, very often known as the Hooge boys, who do a little bit of promotion themselves uh, on the uh, for the cafe, uh, then uh, yeah, all become very good friends. Um, so it's a fantastic museum. Highly recommend it. Uh, enhanced uh, dramatically in the last eighteen months. So I had a had a look round uh, in the last four days, and yeah, an awful lot more to see. Uh, you could spend a good two or three hours in there. It's it's a little old school in in many ways, but it's a brand new film, and yeah, it's a it's a great place to visit. And the food is excellent and very quick, and that's key on the battlefields. That when you're wanting to get in and out, have a quick beer or a, a quick coffee and some food, and then get get on the move again, then uh, it, it's an excellent place to. But uh, highly recommend it. Excellent place to go. If you come on a Matt McLaughlin battlefield tour, if you're an Australian or a, or a British participant on one of those tours, uh, it's one of the places we go quite regularly. When we're in the salient, because the museum is excellent, as Pete said, the cafe is great. It's just it's just a great spot all around, and they're a lovely family. It's it's just a really yeah. a really good typical Flanders hospitality, and that's part of the reason we're here is to engage yeah. with the local people. And this is a great place to do it. So definitely uh, call in there at the museum and cafe. We're not getting we're obviously not getting paid to say any of this. It's just because we both we both genuinely lo- think it's a great place to go, and um, we might get a free coffee. You never know. <laughs> we'll have to declare it, Pete, on our tax return. So we're leaving the uh, the museum and the cafe now, and where are we heading? Yeah, well, we're going just to the side of the cafe. So we've crossed the road, and I have to say, I'm going to mention it, because the road can be rather busy, and you have to watch out for cyclists as well, as uh, anybody that's been to this part of the world. I know cycling's very big. Um, so we've crossed the road. We're at the side where the cafe is. We're going just to the right of the cafe, and we're walking up a street... Oh God! Here we go. Beginnenbosstraat. Uh, begin. Beginnenbosstraat. Begin well, it sounds like, looks like that anyway. It doesn't really matter. Um, and we're going to head up on that. And effectively, we're in no man's land. It does depend slightly on what period we're talking about. So let's stick to 1915 before this battle. The British front line is going to be on our left-hand side as we walk along the street, and the German front line is going to be on the right-hand side. So we're, we're walking in no man's land, and we're walking slightly downhill into a dip where there was once a little stream. I didn't see any sign of it just recently when I was there. 
Um, and um, we have a, a wood called wire wood on our left, which doesn't exist anymore. So this is going to be, it's not quite the same as when we're exploring the battlefields in, in France. Generally speaking, every wood has been replaced. Here they were not always replaced. And in fact, here we have one that's missing, wire wood. And then we have a new one, um, which is uh, often known as crater wood. And uh, that wasn't there. That was just a very cratered bit on the landscape. And that's what we're walking up to. We're walking up to crater wood. Now, I should say, this area has been enhanced recently in the last five years. They've started planting trees. And at first, you don't think there's anything to do with the battlefield. You can see these nice trees at the sides of the roads all over the place in this area. But what you'll notice is some of the trees have a, a red kind of protector around the top of them or around the trunk and some have a blue protector around them well actually it's a clever way of identifying the front lines blue denotes uh, British front lines and red denotes German front lines so keep an eye out for them when you're in this area um, the little bit that you have to check you have to every now and then one of them will have a panel on explaining what you're looking at and you'll need to check that to check what period we're looking at because this is the issue here there's an awful lot of toing and froing um, not uh, not a great distance so you'll need to know which period it is we're looking at but look out for them uh, blue bands and red bands around newly planted trees at the sides of the road they seem very good in Belgium. At, um, at obviously, the progress has to be made. Life has to go on. We can't freeze time and and just preserve the battlefields in every sense. But the the Belgians seem to have struck a very good balance with it in terms of still allowing development to occur and and, and life to move on, but also never forgetting that uh, we're on some pretty hallowed ground here. Yeah, indeed. So we're walking, we're now climbing, we've dropped around to the lowest point, we're climbing up and directly in front of us we can see this wood crater wood and that's one of the woods that we're really heading for, this is the wood we're interested in. On our left now, about, now I have to just give you the figures here, this is truly remarkable and horrific, this is just a couple of fields, it is literally a couple of, uh, of paddocks here. Um, and uh, we're going to have over a thousand people killed in in that day, just in that in these paddocks on the left hand side. So again, the concentration of dead in this area are, are just just extraordinary. I just always find it just so moving when you're physically looking and looking at the at the area that we're just talking about, where the fighting is uh, is taking taking place. Ju just extraordinary. I'm just trying to see what the I did scribble down somewhere what the actual uh, the area is, and it's something just like a, a square mile. Can't, I can't spot it in my notes here. I've got my notes in front of me, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, and so, yeah, just a very small area. Anyway, we're walking up to to the wood, uh, to Crater Wood, um, and we're going to walk around the edge of Crater Wood. So we won't go directly into it because I want to go around to the other side of it. And we're going to walk back through the wood. But what you can immediately see as you look into the wood, as we're walking around the outside of it, is it is absolutely cratered. And this is not from shelling or, or mining, or bombing, should I say. This is actually from mining. So this is the mine wall, and it, it predominantly ourselves, tunnelling underneath the German lines and detonating explosives beneath the German lines. Now, these are not as enormous as the Hill 60 mine or some of the other bigger mines that we've talked about in previous podcasts. This is just an ongoing designed to kill the men above uh, and to make it very difficult for the Germans or anybody to live there. And that's, in, in fact, what happened. This ends up in no man's land. So nobody's living there because it is so devastated. And that's why it's a wood. Because when the farmers came back, there were certain areas, and Hill 60 would be another example, where they just looked at it and thought, it just isn't worth the effort to try and fill these holes in, to get this thing level. Let's just plant some trees. Let's just put some trees in here and uh, and, and use it for 
for uh, for either shooting or for, for the wood for firewood. And that's what's happened here. So there wasn't a wood here and, and there now is a wood. So we're going to walk past the, the edge of that wood and we're going to come to a memorial. And it's the Liverpool Scottish Memorial, uh, first of the 10th Battalion. Uh, of the uh, the Scottish, it's a, a Scottish battalion, but the King's Liverpool Regiment. So this is a, a regiment uh, raised in Liverpool. They're territorial, so part-time soldiers. And when their barracks was pulled down in the 60s, they removed the keystone, which had the crest of the regiment uh, uh, carved into it. And eventually, it did have another location for a while, but eventually it will move out here uh, from Fraser Street uh, Barracks in Liverpool and form a memorial uh, commemorating their efforts. Effort, uh, in the wood here and so it's uh, yeah, a, a laudable thing to do and it's a, it's a, a great little memorial uh, and it's been enhanced recently by another plaque that's with it that actually tells you a little bit more about the story of what, of what happened here so well worth stopping and uh, paying our respects to the men of the of the King's uh, Liverpool Regiment um, just I've got the figures here for uh, four officers and 75 other ranks were killed, 11 officers and 201 ranks were wounded and six officers and 103 ranks were missing. All of the missing uh, were killed, and utterly terribly, um, with almost no exceptions, all the men become missing. Very few of the men have known graves at all, even though we know that they were they were now they were now killed. Uh, so a very moving location uh, to be at. It's interesting, Pete, as we walk through this area, you mentioned the craters and the wood, and it's just an example of the stories the battlefields themselves can tell us, the landscape can tell us. We can we can read about the mining war, and we could look on a map and see that this area is quite devastated, but walking the ground and coming to this area and just seeing how churned up more than a century later the ground still is just tells its own story. And that's why. People say, why should I walk a battlefield? And this is the reason why. You, you can't get a sense of what it must have been like until you stand on that ground and just see the results of that mine warfare. And what we're looking at now is a fraction of what the men did yeah, at the time. And yeah. of course, we don't. We are not involved in the violence that created it, the explosions and the collapses and the, the sinkholes and the trenches caving in and burying men alive, many of whom obviously are still there under that ground. And But it does tell us a little bit of the story, and that's why we visit the battlefields. Every time we come across a pillbox or a crater or an old trench, we learn a little yeah. bit more of the story and we get a little bit more of an insight. And it is, it's time travel. We are able to then go back and just and not understand in any specific detail, but just get a taste of, of what it must have been like for the men. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. There's an extraordinary thing to enhance your experience here as well, if you go online before uh, and carry the picture with you possibly, is because there was a private here called Private um, Frederick Fife, and he'd been a newspaper uh, photographer before the war, and he'd actually brought his camera with him, and not allowed to, of course, uh, you were not allowed to carry your cameras into action, but he risked it, and he took a series of photos that must be some of the most uh, moving and, uh, and unbelievable of the war really he's up against the german uh, parapet so he's he's managed to get up under the german parapet he can't climb over it because he would have been killed and he's looking back and watching the men coming towards him you can see a shell exploding sadly you can see a dead soldier in front of him uh, and you can see an officer moving up they've put a flag on the german parapet to show that they're there to try and keep the artillery from fire their own artillery from firing at where they are on the german on the lip of the german lines it's just a, 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 a wonderful and yet horrific photograph. And uh, I've got it up in front of me as I'm talking. So well worth trying to track, uh, track down. And it 
is of the uh, the King's Liverpool Scottish, so the first of the tenth. These territorial uh, soldiers, uh, just just extraordinary. He went on. He survived the war. He went on to be commissioned. He became an officer and eventually joined the Royal Flying Corps and, and survived the war and went back to his profession. Um, I'm just going to mention one other chap, and there's another whole podcast here, but uh, Lieutenant Noel Chavas was also here. Uh, he will uh, eventually be, become a captain. He's a medical officer with the battalion, same battalion, um, and he will be one of uh, one of the only men to be awarded the Victoria Cross twice before sadly being killed. Uh, there's going to be a whole podcast about him, so I won't go any further than just to say that, but uh, he was uh, awarded the Military Cross during this action, so he was here uh, as well. Well, you've got a, a quote here, Pete, about exactly what it was like for for the men of the Liverpool Scottish. So why don't you um, why don't you share that with us? Because it paints a really good picture of of just how horrific the fighting was in this corner of the salient. Yeah. Okay. So this is actually from the uh, the uh, war diary, and our artillery bombardment started at two ten a.m. and carried out the work of demolition so successfully that little difficulty was experienced in taking the first and second line trenches. Unfortunately, however, in continuing the advance, we suffered many casualties as owing to the difficulty experienced in observing signals. It was impossible to keep our shells ahead of the advancing infantry. So in other words, they're being killed very very common during the Great War, being killed by their own artillery. Although the third line German trenches were reached, it was impossible to hold on to them as the whole brigade uh, consolidated the first and part of the second line German trenches, manning them until 11.30pm the night of the 16th, at which hour we were relieved. The casualties, and we've we've done the casualties, but I'll just carry on. The casualties amongst our officers were particularly heavy, and of the 24 officers who went up, only Lieutenant Wall, 2nd Lieutenant Roddick, and Lieutenant Chavas, who I've just mentioned, came back unscathed. So just just a terrible that they've only got three officers who are not wounded, who are re- returning from the battalion attack. And that's one of many, many battalions that uh, took part in the attack. As I say, this is not a history of the of the fighting, so we won't run through all of the battalions. It's just an overview of what went on where we're standing. I think that's an interesting quote, Pete, from the unit diary because it, it demonstrates a couple of things that might go unnoticed if, unless you uh, pay particular attention to it. And the one thing that I note there is this perception that of the First World War that men are just marching into machine gun fire and getting mown down. Now, the Germans were waiting for them and we just marched towards them and got mown down by machine gun fire. This demonstrates the difficulties that even an attack that started out successfully could fall apart pretty quickly. And the only way you could keep the, the head of your enemy down was with artillery. And it's such a blunt instrument. The the yep. ability to, without decent communication, the ability to tell the artillery where you are and to stop firing or to lift the guns because you've advanced quicker than expected or there's a machine gun yep. over there that's causing havoc, it was just impossible. It wasn't until... Even during the Second World War, they didn't have good radio communication. It wasn't really until Vietnam we're talking about now where you could actually call in artillery fire to support you in real time. And this is a perfect example. That attack actually started really well. They they blasted the Germans with they blasted the Germans with artillery. We can tell even from I don't know a lot about this attack, but I can tell even from this passage. They blasted the Germans with artillery. The Germans were either killed or scarpered after the under the weight of the shell fire. They advanced, they captured the first and second lines of trenches without much difficulty, and then they were stuck. The, the Germans were in the third yep. line, and they couldn't do anything about it. 
Well, the, the big issue again, no communication. This is not a creeping barrage as well. This is just uh, it's, we're pre-creeping barrages, so they're just bombarding the German trenches. And when do you stop bombarding them? Well, you stop when they're taken. But how can you tell? And they're trying to, with these flags, these signal flags, trying to tell the artillery to stop firing on the German line because because they've taken it. And that, that, that's not working too well. Also, this started off in the dark. So, uh, so problems again that the artillery cannot see anything, even if they had good uh, good uh, visibility uh, in the dark uh, di- difficult to see so yeah all, all sorts of problems we're, st- we're still in a, a very difficult phase of the great war and once again how would that have been for the poor men who had been through this fight captured the ground and then were starting to be killed and wounded by their own artillery just again we i, I keep saying it but we can't begin to imagine the horror of being in this no. spot a hundred years ago yeah. yeah true where to next on our walk pete Okay, well, just next door, we can see a little fenced uh, fenced area, and there's very obviously a cross of sacrifice. So this is a Commonwealth War Graves cross, those white uh, uh, Jurassic limestone crosses with the uh, the bronze uh, crusader sword, two-handed crusader sword uh, fastened onto them. Um, and this is a very odd one because there is obviously no graves. We can't see any graves, it's just the plinth. Uh, with the cross on top of it, and it's only when you get closer that you realise there are names written on the plinth. And this is known as R.E. Grave Railway Wood. Confusing, because a lot of people then believe that the wood we're talking about with all the craters in it is railway wood. It's not. Railway wood is, if we continue down the track, we can see it directly in front of us, slightly sloping down, uh, coming off the top of the ridge. Um, that's railway wood, and we're just going to talk about that as the last stopping spot. But this uh, this cemetery, which isn't a cemetery, it's just a, say a list of men, is commemorating the tunnellers. And these are the tunnellers of the 177th 177 Tunnelling Company. Um, and they are commemorated, their names are around the outside. There are eight Royal Engineers of the Tunnelling Company, but there are also four infantrymen. Uh, that are commemorated on there. And that confuses people because if this is commemorating tunnellers who sadly are all below us or in the area, not directly below us, but they are in this area, they died in the tunnel warfare taking place beneath us. Now, their bodies were never recovered. So it was. I think it's very laudable that they've got this memorial above uh, where they they sadly lost their lives and still uh, still rest. But why have we got four infantrymen? Well, it's because we didn't have enough tunnellers in the tunnelling companies. And so they would regularly go into the infantry battalions and say, any of you guys, miners, coal miners, tin miners, whatever kind of miners that they may be, and we need to, uh, we need to temporarily attach you to the tunnelling companies to, uh, to help them out. And so these four infantrymen uh, sadly died while serving with 177 Tunnelling Company. It's also interesting, Pete, that sometimes the poor old infantrymen, even if they weren't miners, were given the unenviable task of going down to help defend the tunnellers because they knew that, particularly if they knew that the Germans were mining close by, there was a real risk that the tunnels could meet and that there could actually be fighting in the tunnels underground. And so often they would send down infantrymen. And I've seen in museums sawn off 303 rifles that the infantrymen would take down to use in close quarters in the tunnels. Again, the horror of having to fight. It would be, I mean, you, you would have thought that your lot was pretty bad in life to be stuck in a trench on the Western Front and then for your officer to come along and say, okay, Private Smith, head down that tunnel and take yeah. your rifle with you, young man, and uh, yeah. take on any Jerry you come across. Just horrific again. It's, it's little wonder these men came back and were just shells of yeah. their former selves. 
traumatized would be the word. Um, I th- I, I, as well as fighting down there, of course, they needed the manpower. These the tunnelers were literally digging the tunnels, but they needed uh, you know poor old Joe Bloggs to be there passing sandbags to each other as they're taking the spoil from the the front of the tunnel. So an awful lot of inf- infantrymen, not even with their rifles down there, they're just being used as labourers in long lines of men taking the spoil to the uh, to the surface and. It makes you think. Where would you where would you prefer to be? Was it better to be in the front line with your rifle, or would you, would you feel safer down in the tunnel, near near the front line, near the German lines, uh, taking the spoil out for the tunnelers? I think, I'd, as I've mentioned several times, I think I'd rather be working in the docks on the coast. Personally, that's where I'd want to be during the Great War. Um, I don't fancy either of these ideas, but uh, yeah, yeah, truly traumatizing. And I often think. If you were ordered down there, what if you were claustrophobic? I mean, there must have been men who were claustrophobic in, in the in the battalions. It just doesn't bear thinking about, really. I remember reading an interview with a First World War veteran, a British First World War veteran, and um, he, uh, in the years after the war, and actually when he was an old man, he was interviewed about the whole thing, and I remember him talking about being down in the tunnels and talking about being in the trenches, and he said, you know, someone asked me what would I do if there was another war, and I'll tell you what, I'd make the bloody ammunition. <laughs> so I think he felt. I think he felt he'd done his time in the trenches, and you can certainly see why in areas like this. Once again, it's the landscape telling us a story. There's a yep, memorial here is. which you could drive or walk past a dozen times and never notice, yep. and you, all you've got to do is stop and read it. And there's a whole story about so many lives uh, lost in such awful circumstances. Yeah, indeed. So from here, we're, we, we won't actually walk there. We, we can look down upon Railway Wood from here. And Railway Wood was there, of course, obliterated during the fighting. But it's been uh, put back. There's a little house in the middle of it now. So it's all private. But, uh, this is very private, so you can't get into it. But if you do make the effort to walk down and just ha- have a look, the, the road in front of it used to be a sunken road. It's no longer really a sunken road. But there are terrible stories about the sunken road here being full of dead. Um, so so uh, yeah, a very, a very uh, difficult place to be. And you can look over the hedge and you can see into Railway Wood and you can see there are a, a few craters. Those craters are now preserved. I should say that, that there is, uh, again, we've talked before, there's sometimes the difference between France and Belgium, whereas um, a lot of the uh, the things that are left, some of these, these very few things that we can actually see in Belgium, then they are preserved. So the craters, you can no longer just fill, fill the craters in, as of course as, has happened in the past. What I didn't mention, and I should have mentioned earlier, if we walk back to the uh, railway, uh, uh, the cemetery, so Railway Wood, the Royal Engineers' grave at Railway Wood, Ari uh, Grave, if you look towards Epe from here, you get the most fantastic view of Epe, and it all suddenly makes sense. You are literally looking over uh, Hellfire Corner, that famous, uh, it's now the roundabout, uh, always sounds rather strange when you say that, Hellfire Corner, now is Hellfire Roundabout, but you're looking over Hellfire uh, Corner into the city itself and you realise this is why this fighting is taking place. Uh, we are attempting to push the Germans off this bit of ridge that juts out from the ridges that run around the salient, that flat area, and that's what this fighting is about. It's about trying to get the Germans off this ridge because they, the view they had is fantastic. They could organise their artillery behind them and they could uh, pick their targets from up on, on this ridge. And, and it becomes very, very visual. It, it's a great place to be just to get an idea and suddenly things start falling into place. Because from here, you can also look round the ridge a little bit and you can, you can see back towards Hill 60. And uh, so, yeah, you can start pointing out things and thinking, oh, yeah, it's falling into place. Now carry a good map with you, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a good lo- location to be at. 
It's important, these sites, Pete, in the Eep Salient, because the, we use the word ridge and we talk about Messine Ridge and we talk about Passchendaele Ridge ah. and Broodsend Ridge. <laughs> it's important because if, as you drive around this countryside, you just use one word to describe it, flat. There's nothing... Yeah. I mean, Messine Ridge is a genuine, a genuine yeah. hill, but these ridges, particularly out this side of the salient, um, yeah. there's nothing that indicates it's a ridge. If you were in a car, you wouldn't have to change out of high gear. You can ride your bike easily without even noting you're going up a hill. Plenty of people walk this area. It's This is not difficult country. And literally, as you drive out there, you would not notice you are very slowly going slightly uphill. But when you get to the top and you turn around and look back, yeah. you just realise that over exactly. over a dozen kilometres, the ground has just very gradually sloped up. So eventually, when you stand on that high ground, you have an extraordinary view over this flat countryside. It was so important to the fighting the Germans had it earlier in the war and we absolutely had to push them back to prevent them from uh, both observation but also from using that high ground to defend attacks. So just just extraordinary, the landscape again and, and the story it, it tells. Is. Yeah. So final pause of call as we head back to go get a, a coffee at the, uh, at the cafe again. We're going to literally walk through this wood because one of the fantastic things, and this happened in the last five years, again, this was a private wood. You couldn't go into it. You just looked over the, the, over the edge. That changed and there are now footpaths cut through uh, the whole of the wood and we can zigzag amongst these uh, enormous craters within the wood. So you enter it from behind the London Scottish Memorial into the wood, walk right the way through the wood. It's, it's, it's absolutely worth every minute that you're in there to get a feel of what of what it was like and out the other side and then head back to the cafe. Now, I'm just going to bring in one quick Second World War thing because it's so interesting. As some of you will be aware, I have an interest in the V1s of the Second World War and V1 launch sites. And believe it or not, this was listed on a list of possible locations for a V1 launch ramp to be built. It was never built because I suspect that they looked at a map and thought, yeah, that'll be make a good place, seeing the little wood there. And it would only be when they turned up to, uh, to literally to survey it and realise that you couldn't build anything in here because it is so cratered. Uh, but it's just interesting that it is on the list of potential V1 launch sites of the Second World War. So go back and listen to our one of our very early podcasts was on exploring a V1 launch site. So these are, of course, the doodlebug bombs, the flying bombs that flew yep. over London and caused such havoc and such more more fear than death and destruction. But uh, just a fascinating chapter in these launch sites. We do a walk around one of them in an earlier podcast. Go and check that one and, out as well. And, and we'll probably be back to do another walk later on. We will indeed. Pete, it's been really great. Thank you so much. It's To me, it's just one of the literally thousands of little byways on the battlefields that you can find. You can spend a couple of hours walking in an area and learn so many amazing stories in an area you would never probably specifically seek out. This is not, it's not Tietval or it's not Tynecott Cemetery. You would never specifically seek this out, but you can take a stroll along just this small little sector of the, of the Western Front and learn so much about what went on there. Just so many thousands more that we can do uh, in this podcast series, and hopefully we'll get the chance to do that. But, uh, but just thank you, mate. Just a, a, really great, a really great experience to walk this ground. Yeah, no, it was great. Great, great chatting about it. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.